Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 30, being recorded on Thursday, June 2nd, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Happy June. Happy June to you, Scott. How are you doing? Good. It's kind of a... The year is going very quickly. I don't know if it's because we're doing a lot of podcasting or what's going on. It just feels like 2016 is blasting by. It is indeed. Almost a day per day. So I'm actually at home this week in sunny Raleigh, North Carolina. Where are you? I am also home in sunny Chicago today. Wow. This is like one of the few times where one of us isn't traveling. Yeah, a rare occurrence. It's like all the planets are in alignment. I already got a 30 episodes. There's been like maybe five or six where, where that's happened. I bet you you are right. I feel like it's also been a big milestone week for the podcast. Really? Tell me more. Well, we passed 30,000 downloads. Awesome. Yay. Which is super exciting. Obviously, we have entirely our loyal listeners to thank for that. Yeah, thank you, everyone. We really appreciate it. We um, we kind of started the podcast. This is a good, now that we're at 30,000, we can give a little origin story. The, you know, the, the genesis of this was just we would be at board meetings for shop.org and just enjoy having these kind of conversations and tried to replicate it and thought, hey, maybe someone would want to hear that. We know two people that would like to hear it. And uh, here we are, 30,000 downloads later. So we really appreciate everyone jumping on the Jason and Scott show bandwagon. Absolutely. And further validating that we weren't the only two people that wanted to listen, Price Waiter came out with their list of the top five e-commerce podcasts. And we, once again, were honored to be on that list. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was uh, pretty awesome as well. And that's the second time we've been on a list like that, right? Exactly. Yeah, so 30 shows and we're uh, starting to get some momentum here. Absolutely. And then the other big milestone today is it's my third wedding anniversary. And romantically, my wife suggested I spend it with you and our loyal listeners. Well, happy anniversary. And I'm sure, uh, you know, maybe after this, your wife could just listen to the podcast. It'll be kind of fun. Exactly. That or I could run out and get her favorite dessert. Yeah, I I would definitely opt for the dessert thing. Yeah. And mom, I know you're listening. I promise to do something nice for Lila. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, I think this week we're going to take a break from the litany of recaps, deep dives, and interviews we've been doing to catch up on some of the exciting news in the e-commerce industry. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot going on. So exciting to hear what you think are some of the top news items. But before we do that, it's important to let everyone know that we will be in Chicago next week. So I will be at Internet Retailer, and um, I do this – I think it's the fourth year I've done it. It's either fourth or fifth year I've done it, and it's it's uh, it's called Amazon and Me, which doesn't make a lot of sense. I'll explain what it is. But it's – so the so Internet Retailer kicks off kind of Tuesday night, uh, and then Wednesday is the main kind of first day. They do these pre-conference workshops. So so I do one where I, uh, I curate everything and then stay on stage. And and it's literally like eight hours of nothing but Amazon. We talk about 
Um, this year, we'll be talking a lot about about half retail oriented and half brands because over time, uh, what's been interesting, you and I have talked about this trend is more and more brands have been coming to this kind of saying, "Hey, um, you know, I'm interested in the Amazon marketplace and Amazon in general, but tell me more about Vendor Central and strategies for brands." Uh, so, so do a lot on that content, and then I'll be there Wednesday, and then I have to head out uh, for my son's graduation. Where are you going to be doing it, Internet Retailer? I am going to have the exact opposite schedule. I will be out of town Monday and Tuesday, so I will miss your pre-conference, which obviously I would have paid extra to go listen to were I in town. And then I am going to be at the show starting Wednesday morning to catch all the content Wednesday and Thursday. And we have a booth at IRCE, so uh, folks are welcome to come by and visit the booth and ask to say hello, and they'll see if they can track me down. But I'm equally excited. We always host a party at the show. It's here in our hometown in Chicago. And there's a cool new restaurant that just opened this week that we're using as our venue, the London House. So I'll put a link in our show notes, but all the listeners are totally invited to come by, check out the London House, and uh, say hello to me and join us for a couple drinks. Awesome. I should... uh I should point out I will be at the Channel Advisor booth uh, Wednesday morning until about two o'clock. So look forward to seeing everybody. Does the London House have uh, is this fish and chips or like what's the whole story? It's American cuisine, but it's a high rise um, right on the bridge on the Chicago River, and the restaurant is the top three floors. So they have these sort of spectacular views of. The river and the and Lake Michigan and the Chicago skyline and I haven't been to the restaurant myself yet, but there's apparently indoor and outdoor dining, and so I think the big draw is these beautiful extravagant patios with great views. Nice. Can you see? Is this kind of in Wrigleyville area, or can you see baseball games from it? No, it's. Uh, I actually live quite close to Wrigley, but it is uh, in the heart of downtown, right on the Chicago oh. River. So, okay, uh, you would have to bring a telescope if you wanted to watch the baseball game. <laughs> cool well that's gonna be fun how um so i guess you guys have done this party every year for quite a while huh yeah yep i actually don't know what year we started there's this tradition predates me okay good uh we've got a lot of news to jump jump into here the and it wouldn't be a jason and scott show if we didn't start with some amazon news uh it's been um these are some highlights there's so much amazon news we could literally fill a whole show probably every other week with just amazon news uh, some of the things I've been tracking that were really interesting, the so so Amazon in their, their annual recap, they they talked about how you know how successful FBA was last holiday season, uh, but then they also said it got a little tight. You know, the, the CFO said something to that. I forget his exact words, but it, it was kind of you know we were quite full, uh, and so so a lot of us were kind of like, hmm, that was an interesting thing for him to say. And sure enough, this year they rolled out kind of their their regular rite of passage in the spring, some some fee changes to FBA. And, and what I think is interesting is. Everywhere across the board, Amazon relentlessly lowers prices. Even on cloud computing, they're just like will randomly cut prices just because they feel like tweaking the other cloud computing people. Um, but this is the one area where Amazon raises prices, and it's the fulfillment by Amazon or FBA fees. And what they've done this year is they've introduced surge pricing. So uh, there's there's definitely a higher fee for uh, slow-moving items to be stored at FBA facilities. And it was really interesting kind of reading through some of the comments they had here. They, they said things like, you know, we've got a lot of 
2000, I forget the year, like 2006 calendars sitting in fulfillment centers um, and, and things of that nature. They also said we're going to increase the pace of new fulfillment centers. And, and that actually sent Wall Street into a bit of a tizzy because the kind of view that Amazon's been in this harvest profit mode here recent, recently, they haven't been they've been building fulfillment centers, but they haven't been on kind of like this massive leg of investment. Um, so that sent Walmart into a tizzy, the fact that they kind of said they're going to open some new fulfillment centers. Um, so, so that was really interesting. And um, some of the things we've been hearing from customers is when you, when you get ready to submit stuff to FBA, what you do is you, you kind of, you tell Amazon the ASINs or the SKUs and, you know, here's what's coming, here's how many, and then they reconcile that when it comes in. Now what they're starting to do, Amazon's starting to use that kind of upload list and they're actually rejecting stuff before you can even ship it, before they'll even print out an inbound FBA label. They'll say, so let's say, let's pretend you had, you know, Jason's t-shirt store and you had a thousand SKUs you were going to send to FBA. They may reject, um, I'm hearing as high as half of these, they would say, you know, we already have a lot of depth on this SKU and therefore you are not, we're not going to let you ship it to FBA. So, so Amazon is, you know, seems to be quite serious about limiting the things that go into FBA and making sure there's this really high velocity items, which I thought was interesting. And then on the heels of that, they announced three new fulfillment centers. Uh, and these, these are pretty big ones. So two new ones in California. Um, so, um, in Tracy and then Eastvale, that brings them to nine fulfillment centers in California. And literally, I think three years ago, they didn't have a single one in, in California. So they now have 9 million square feet in California. And, um, so that's pretty impressive. And then a new one in, you're not going to the words in Joliet. Is that how you say it? Or Juliet, um, in, in Illinois. I am not a native and I'm not sure I know the correct pronunciation, but I'm going Juliet. Juliet. All right. Well, yeah, we agree. Then we're almost certainly wrong. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was interesting. Did you uh, see that? And any thoughts? I did. I thought the fact that they're rejecting SKUs on, on FBA is particularly interesting because they've always tried to financially incentivize the behavior they want. So they've always been really punitive on the slow-moving goods. I can't figure out how those calendars could be sitting in there because the owners of that inventory are paying through the nose for the slow-turning SKU. Yeah, and they've um, they've tried things like um, so. It used to be that you would send stuff there, and then there was a fee to kind of get it out. Um, and they've they've kind of had amnesty periods on that fee to try to get people to take stuff out. Um, and you know, I, I, I think I think they're going to continue to do things. I think they're very very worried about peak this year, especially as it relates to fulfillment by Amazon. If I kind of read the tea leaves on kind of how they're acting here. Yep. No, that makes perfect sense. But to me, that it is a slight game changer that they're now just outright rejecting SKUs because they either proactively know it's not going to be a fast turner or they have too much depth. Because you can imagine people have to source those goods before they know whether Amazon will take them or not. Yeah, and it, it can be really frustrating because a lot of our customers have gotten into this mode of using FBA for all their fulfillment. Um, so they'll, they'll kind of, in the early days of FBA, what they would do, most of our customers have a warehouse as well. So they would say, I have a thousand widgets and I want it to be prime eligible. So I'll send half to Amazon and half, and, and that gets kind of hard to manage. So what a lot of our customers do is they'll just kind of mark a widget as FBA or their own warehouse and they'll treat FBA like a 3PL. And, uh, and that's a feature. A lot of people don't know you can do that with FBA, but you absolutely can. It's a little bit more expensive, but not pejorative. Um, 
And this really flubs that for people because it may not be a top seller on Amazon, but maybe it's for them and their website or eBay or the Walmart marketplace or what have you, uh, you know, where, wherever else they're selling, it, it could be a fast seller. And now that's getting rejected out of FBA. Um, I've even heard where, where they'll say, well, you know, you should only send 300. So they're, they're true. They're, they're very much metering kind of what's coming into FBA. And it's, it's kind of messing up a lot of people's kind of current systems. So in a way it's good. They're doing it now versus kind of the holiday. Um, oh, yeah. But, but one thing we're speculating against is we've, we've seen this behavior where people kind of uh, jump the holiday with FBA. Um, so, so certain categories, they lock down for holiday. They've already kind of done this surge thing like toys. Um, so what we, what we see is sellers and, you know, it used to be like two, years ago october they would send it now uh you know as as early as august they start kind of loading up fba uh and for for peak so it, this, some of these things have unintended consequences so one that'll be interesting to watch is to see if people try to kind of start you know avoiding that 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 peak they won't be able to avoid the charge but i think they'll you know avoid it's gonna be a race to see who can get the most skews into fba so that they can get them in there so that's gonna be interesting yeah a new dimension to think about i feel bad i'm picturing a bunch of people with their little mobile apps in the the sports authority clearance sales trying to arbitrage items for amazon and i feel bad if they get rejected from fba for that Another thing that's been happening that's really fascinating is um, so when you sell on, um, let's say you sell on eBay, um, eBay would like, you know, very much like to get a tracking number so that the consumer can go to eBay and look up the tracking number. And, you know, eBay works with all the major carriers and their tracking numbers and, and it's all wired together. So if it's UPS or USPS or DHL or whoever, Royal Mail or whatever it is, it all just kind of works. Um, one of the challenges is increasingly for those customers that are using FBA, Amazon is doing direct delivery. And that's kind of what it's called. And the problem is when, when you go to Amazon and it's been direct delivery and you're selling on the Amazon marketplace through FBA, there's kind of a tracking number kind of a system there. Um, and it, it's not really clear to the consumer that it's not FedEx, UPS, or yeah. yeah. Um, but then the challenge is we do have a fair number of these customers that do ship on eBay and Walmart and their website, and now they can't provide a tracking number. So it actually is kind of like starting to hurt their their feedback ratings. And there's there's some SLAs where you have to have certain percentage of your things with tracking numbers and everything. Um, so it's kind of become a bit of a hairy issue. So you know the the conspiracy theorist theorists would say that you know that's kind of Amazon almost kind of you know, in a way hurting these other channels where, where these things are sold. I, I think that's probably not why they're doing it. I think Amazon's just doing a lot of delivery, um, which is a good segue into the next thing I wanted to bring up with Amazon. Um, one of my, this is an exciting time of year for us, us geeks in the e-commerce world. Uh, and for you retail geek, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I feel like you're excited. The, you have, so we had Google IO, we had shop talk, we got IRCE, Recode does a really good conference, and um, they've just had a really stellar uh, lineup. We don't have time to cover everybody, but they had um, Devin Winnig from eBay. They had Elon Musk. That was fascinating. Um, totally unrelated to e-commerce, but if anyone likes Elon, go watch all those. Um, the most fascinating one for me was Jeff Bezos. And 
Jeff Bezos doesn't speak out in public a lot. This is the first time I've seen him since the Business Insider Conference in Holiday of 14, I think, do a public interview like this. And it was really fascinating. Um, one of the things he talked about was, uh, and, and you know these Recode guys don't pull punches, and they said effectively, are you going to compete with FedEx and UPS, which we've talked a lot about on the show. And it, his answer was very interesting. He said, um, we're not competing with FedEx, UPS, and the U.S. Postal Service. We're just supplementing their capabilities. And there was a bit of a dramatic pause, and he said, heavily. <laughs> so, that, so that was a little ominous. Um, and then he kind of said, total deadpan, and also better prices on transportation. This is a, I'll, I'll quote this. Uh, I'm doing air quotes if you can't see me. Uh, better prices on transportation would be acceptable to us. And you know, that – what I took from that was he was kind of like almost them saying, look, if if we're going to keep building this out unless you lower your prices. So it's kind of a really interesting negotiating tactic that, you know, you know, could potentially backfire. Um, but I thought it was it was the most he has said about this. It's the first time he's talked about it um, ever that, that I've seen yep. a couple other tidbits from that recode interview. Um, he was kind of dropped. He's like, yeah, Alexa's pretty important to us. We have, you know, over a thousand people working on it. And I was just like, oh, my God. God, that's amazing because, you know, as you and I have pointed out on the show, um, simple things like there's no skills store. I was going to say, could one of those guys be working on the skills uh, store? Yeah, I'm like, dude, put 10 people on a skill store and at least give me a taxonomy, a search and and recommendations and, you know, some star ratings. You know, what this is like, you know, at least give me 97 Amazon experience for this thing. Um, He also kind of said, and and I was – I did this really long interview with the New York Times about three or four weeks ago about Alexa, and then the one quote they pulled out of that whole interview was, "I said it, you know, it could be their next billion dollar business," which which I do believe. Uh, and he actually said it could be like the fourth column at Amazon, um, so that they're treating it very very seriously. So I thought that was interesting. Um, did you get a chance to check that interview? I did. I was curious. Did you believe Jeff when he said we're not intending to compete with FedEx? If you were an exec at FedEx or UPS, would you? Breathe a sigh of relief at that quote, or I would not. That was my take as well. Like when when Mister Your Margin is My Opportunity says that that's not his plan. Like that that doesn't give me great confidence. Well, competing is all relative, right? You know, if um, you know, if I think the definition of competing is like you know, for the postal service is everyday delivery to homes, and, and I don't. I don't think they'll go there, but yep. what Amazon does, a lot of people don't realize is they have so much data. Like think of the, so they have like 300 million active shoppers. They've got something like 50 million prime users. So, so they know a lot about, um, and then, then all these customers send product into them um, using UPS primarily. Um, they get all this shipping in from manufacturers. So they can kind of look at that and figure out, you know they they know the fee structure and they probably can figure out the FedEx, UPS, and USPS margins. So, so they can just they don't have to compete with them. They can just kind of like prune that tree and get enough margin out of it that it's a great business for them. Their shipping costs go way down, but they're still not effectively competing. So there's a lot of wiggle room in that statement. Sure, and I do absolutely believe that the primary intent is supplementation because frankly their growth aspirations are just dramatically higher than the capacity increases at cumulatively FedEx, UPS, and USPS. So they literally are forced into growing that capacity. It's, it's, you know, just the speculation is once you already have to build that capacity, then do you 
do you try to monetize it? Or particularly if you have seasonal peaks, do you try to monetize the the valleys? Yeah. And, and uh, what's interesting is the FedEx CFO said, he got everyone's getting asked this now. Um, he said on their recent earnings that, you know, we don't want to build a church for, for one for Easter. Um, and, and, you know, what they're talking about is peak, right? They don't want to build all this capability for that, that kind of three week window at peak um, and then have it sit idle. And that that's that makes sense if you're a transportation company. If you're Amazon and, and you are obsessive about putting that customer first, you will build that church for that one day. Uh, and and you know, and this is where they, you know, having seen this playbook in the industry, we know how it's going to go, right? That's what they did with computing infrastructure. They're like, well, we have to, you know, the site can't be down on Cyber Monday and and Black Friday. Let's build that church, uh, and then to cover the cost when it's not at peak, we'll we'll open it up for other people to fill in those gaps. And you know, so that it, you know, I, I think you're right. I think it, I think they're definitely going to go build that capability, and and it makes a lot of sense. You, you can't just flex it up for three weeks. It just doesn't, it, you know, that's not yeah. going to work. It has to be there, and to do that, you're going to have to spread the cost out. So it seems to me like there's definitely going to be some element of competition there. Yep, I did see that quote from the FedEx guy, and. I didn't totally get the metaphor because I, I feel like Christianity is obviously a little over 2000 years old and all the good churches were built for Easter. Yeah. 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 And they're, you know, they're a Southern company. So they use those kind of things. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of other Amazon, uh, just quick ones. Uh, so Amazon fresh is their kind of heavy grocery delivery, many more SKUs than, than uh, prime now, for example. Uh, and uh, for a while they haven't really been doing much with fresh. It's like a very, it's been on this slow boil, you know, and for the first five years it was in Seattle and it didn't move out. Then it kind of moved to San Francisco and LA. And then it's in the, the tri-city area of New York, New Jersey uh, and yeah, tri-state area. And then, then, you know, for like the last two years, it hasn't really expanded and they just announced that it's coming to London. So that that's pretty interesting. Um, and London, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, is really pretty progressive. We, we have a pretty big office there and most of our people already get, you know, 100% of their, their groceries delivered. So there's, it's going to be interesting. Amazon's actually kind of facing an incumbent grocery delivery world there. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Fresh can kind of dislodge some of that. Um, we we talked a little bit about um, you know, uh, two or three weeks ago how a lot of the apparel guys have imploded and, and that kind of fed the f- the flames of Amazon heading towards the number one apparel retailer. Uh, there was news out this week that uh, there's a magazine called Twice and I think it's a publication of this CEA, which is that the organization that puts on CES, um, and they said that Amazon has passed Walmart and is now the number two retailer of electronics, second only to Best Buy. Um, that's and this then, week in consumer electronics. Yes. And then the the other thing that was interesting in Amazon, and there's a little bit of a, an intro here. Another reason you and I get excited is there's there's two big reports that tend to drop this time of year. Uh, Mary Meeker drops her massive, you know, if this thing was printed, it would be 800 pounds. It's it's a over 200 slideshow presentation, and she she tends to deliver it at the Recode conference, so it's a great time for that. And then uh, Comscore came out with their their kind of refresh of of the first quarter, and they used to do these things quarterly, and now they're on every six months or so. So so it's always good to get some new Comscore data. Um, but looking at the Mary Meeker report, one of one of the things I kind of took from it was she kind of 
she was down on Apple, meaning she kind of feels like we're at peak iPhone. There's not a lot of innovation going on there. Uh, and this is kind of shared by Wall Street, too. Um, and then she she was very glowing about Amazon. And I kind of took it, you know, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan, and we're in the middle of the season. So it, it felt like she was saying, you know, Amazon is taking the Iron Throne from Apple. Um, and I, I thought that was really interesting. And, and she was very, very big on Alexa and and the whole movement from you know keyboard interface to verbal AI, all that stuff. So that was interesting that she has really glommed onto that. And, and historically, she hasn't really talked too much about Amazon. It's been you know, you know, before you had stores and after you had Amazon, but but nothing quite as is um, shining about Amazon. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Now in that Game of Thrones metaphor. Is Amazon the Targaryens or is he the Night King? Uh, the unburnt Queen Daenerys. There you go. Okay. It's Jeff Bezos. Yes, it's helpful when you're the only one with dragons. Yes. Speaking of Amazon dominating, another piece of news that I think broke today was an article in Business Insider that was using some Comscore data to talk about one area where Amazon has particularly been dominating the competition, and that's mobile. And so they essentially publish some data that the average user spends 103 minutes a month on Amazon versus 20 minutes a month on Target and 14 minutes a month on Walmart. So more than a 5x advantage in terms of time spent on Amazon versus Target or Walmart for mobile users. And they're also, part of that is, they're getting more frequency of visit. So Amazon, on average, is getting six visits a month from their mobile users, whereas Walmart's getting two and a half visits a month, and Target and most other retailers are getting about two visits a month. So that's a pretty significant gap in the fastest-growing, most important segment of commerce users. Yeah, a couple other uh, interesting things, and we'll put it in the show notes, but um, the Comscore deck is 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 pretty fascinating. Um, one Amazon element in there is they track amongst the people that they track. And I always forget exactly how they do this, but they track like what apps are on the home screen and they call that home screen incidents. And they look for they, they look at kind of the, the rate of home screen incidents on an app. And Amazon has always been when they take kind of the e-commerce apps, Amazon's up been up to the kind of the right kind of a, a, on 15% of the home screens effectively. Um, and then, What's interesting is they just updated it from October, you know, kind of the six month pace, and it a- added five points. So it all these other apps were pretty stationary or went down, and Amazon surged from fifteen percent to twenty percent, and it's it's pretty dramatic when you see it graphically on the chart. Um, the last one is um, of those folks that have one e commerce app, uh, Amazon has like a fifty percent share, which is which is kind of obvious, but you know, still. You know, in this world where mobile traffic's growing faster than desktop, desktop's actually decelerating, um, and you know, smartphone is kind of what I'm talking about with mobile, and Amazon kind of increasingly is the e-commerce app. It, it's just kind of feeding this kind of Amazon frenzy that's already happening. So, so definitely an important trend for for people to understand and keep an eye on. Very much so. You know, it's one of the reasons I really advise retailers to be cautious about overinvesting in the app because it it just really is hard to build a user base. And we keep seeing data that while apps are super important, the usage overwhelmingly skews towards a handful of super popular apps. And it's pretty tough to break into that elite group. 
Yeah, it's a reason I kind of say if 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 you're losing mobile share, you should consider selling on eBay and Amazon because they have really kind of captured the number one and two position there. So speaking of those two reports, do we want to dive into the Mary Meeker report first? Yeah. What were your highlights? I had a couple. A, I should start out by saying totally look forward to this report every year. I don't know if we're just plateauing a little bit in digital, if the disruption is a little less every year now, but I feel like there were years when there was voluminous, dramatically new stuff that made me think about the market totally different uh, in each report. And I feel like there's less of that last year and even less this year as we progress. So maybe I'm just more jaded and less surprised by stuff, or maybe there is just less dramatic stuff. But the stuff that really caught my attention out of her report this year Number one, it's totally acceptable to have 126 slides in a 20-minute presentation. So I'd like all the people to book me to get off my back on my slide count. (laughs) I have that problem, too. Yep, yep. And number two, I think she had some interesting trends around the shift in user interface from keyboards and text to voice and image. And I I think there's some compelling stats from Badow in there, which is pretty far ahead in voice search. And I think there was a prediction that that uh, 50% of all Google searches by 2020 will be voice or image. And, you know, that's super interesting to me. It dramatically changes how you have to, it's not just a user interface change, it actually changes how you optimize your content. So the sentence, the words you type into Google when you do a search are different than the words you say to Google when you do a search. You tend to add more descriptive words and speak in complete sentences when you speak. And so it gives these extra contextual clues to the search. And so it really, SEO for voice search is actually meaningfully different than SEO for text search. So it's just a, an interesting shift we're all going to have to get used to. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that segment. Yep, so I, I was excited about that. I think she has some interesting slides about the evolution of commerce. So she talks kind of about the evolution of store formats, which is something that I'm very interested in. And she maps the evolution in store formats to these different cohorts of user. You know, the store formats and the specific retailers that grew up with boomers versus Gen Xers versus millennials. And I, I just I think it's really interesting to think about that and most recently would talk about those those Andy Dunn digitally native vertical brands as the retailers for millennials. Yeah. I found that stuff interesting. There was, there was a particularly interesting call out on boomers versus Gen Xers. She had a chart showing the favorite vehicle for receiving customer service. And so if you're a boomer or a Gen Xer, your favorite vehicle for customer service is voice, and your second favorite vehicle is email. If you're a Gen Xer, it's almost a tie between voice and email. But if you're Gen Y, a millennial, your least favorite vehicle for customer service is voice, and your most favorite is chat followed by social. And so this is a trend we talk about with a lot of retailers that they're just starting to add capability to provide customer service and to provide experiences via these uh, chat services like Facebook Messenger here or WeChat in China. And we've, we've talked a lot about that. But this is another data point. All these retailers are desperate to win millennials. And it's clear that they have preferences for these 
new channels. So I think that's another thing that's going to force new behaviors on the part of retailers and brands. Yeah. And what I, I would, uh, I liked the generational stuff was really good. And, and there's like a three slide segment that really kind of ties in with a lot of themes we've hit on and it's slides 62, 63 and 64. Um, and we'll have a link to this in the show notes for those of you that, that haven't downloaded it. And, and it, it's interesting that the sequence is the first one in this kind of three slide sequence is retail. The new normal is drive transaction volume, collect data, use the data, launch new products and private labels. Um, and that's really, you know, what Amazon's been doing with, with a lot of this private label work around apparel and, and some of these other things they're working on. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and then this was really interesting. We've hit on this a lot, like in our interview with Amanda, for example, uh, and in our Shop Talk recap, um, this kind of captures that digital native brand thing. And she says, products become brands, brands become retailers, Retailers become products, meaning that, you know, I think what she's saying there is there's this world of having a multi-brand retailer. Um, I think those folks go away and the ones that survive have to kind of pivot into private label or their own house products. Um, and then, you know, then they come into your homes and she kind of uses stitch fix and subscription commerce as kind of a model. And then the last one is physical retailers become digital retailers, but then digital retailers become data optimized physical retailers. And she, she, she uses Warby, but it's kind of ties into that bonobos thing. So that's a really interesting sequence. And I, I kind of like how she pieced it together there. That's uh, that, that that's really good. But, um, I was a. I felt like it was really super heavy on like macroeconomic stuff, you know, around like you know GDP is here and it's going to slow, and you know, and then the, that kind of teed up China and, and India, which she seems to be thinking a lot about, which, which is moderately interesting. But I, I feel like that's a pretty well known, you know, kind of. There weren't any surprises in there. It's just kind of like beating a bit of a uh, a dead horse there. Yeah, and it was interesting because when she first introduced it, my initial knee jerk was shoot, she has less content this year. So she's she's putting filler content in there. At least content that, that is well available from many other sources. And then, you know, as the thing progresses, she didn't have near enough time in the live presentation to cover all her slides. So I don't totally get why she invested that much time in the macroeconomic trends. Me either. She obviously uh, did not call us on this one. We're going to have to do a special podcast episode on presentation tips for people Scott and Jason have to listen to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'll add two downloads to our to our account right there. <laughs> Your mom being one of them. Even my mom might not download that one. My mom, you, we joke, but my mom has listened to every episode, which is amazing. And she now when we talk, she references things that I've mentioned in the podcast, which is both scary and cool. But she says that it's kind of like listening to a Spanish radio station. She she gets the conversation, but doesn't understand a lot of the nouns. <laughs> cool. Well, we appreciate our listening. Absolutely. Thanks, Mom. Did you get a chance to catch the Comscore State of the Internet report? I did. Yeah. The um, I talked a little bit about some of the mobile stuff. What were some of the highlights for you? We use this stat a lot. We meaning you and I. Comscore is a good source for us year over year growth. And so talking about Q1 year-over-year growth, digital grew 16%. So maybe like a percentage point higher than Q2 did, but right in that average that we tend to think of when we talk about full year, year year-over-year growth. And they pulled the Department of Commerce data, and they pulled like gas and restaurants out of that, and retail is basically growing at 4%. So so again, digital is still growing at 
16% versus retail at four, which I don't think is a, a surprise to you or I, but I think that's an important context to have for everyone working in this space. One stat that I find really helpful that Comscore gives that's super important to me is the percentage of orders that were shipped with free shipping. And so for Q1, 63% of all e-commerce included free shipping. And that that's a meaningful increase year over year. Q4 is always the highest percentage of free shipping. So Q4 last year was 69% free shipping. And that if that's a surprise to you, you should also know that Comscore does a survey of consumers every year and they outright ask consumers what the most important factors to you are in placing e-commerce order. And by a wide, wide margin, the number one re- factor for most consumers is free shipping. Yeah. That just sort of reinforces to me what what has become a sort of an axiom of e-commerce. Consumers want the fastest free option available, and free shipping is overwhelmingly more important than almost any other factor when you're building out an e-commerce experience. Yeah, the uh, I think it was the first time they've ever said this, but they they and I forget the exact stat. I, I can pull it up. I think they attributed. Um, in the survey data, when they ask people why they abandon cart, it's when they get in the cart and it's not free shipping. So it seemed when I read that slide, I, I felt like they were saying that that's the largest contributor to cart abandonment. But um, so I, I thought that was the first time I'd heard them use it, that stat and kind of that way of tying it to cart abandonment. I thought that was interesting. Yep. And that totally mirrors other similar surveys that we've seen. We've talked about a little bit. I tend to favor the observed behavior versus the stated behavior. So the fact that 63% do have free shipping is more important to me than what consumers say is most important. But I can also, like another observed antidote I can tell you is we've tested free shipping offers against other kinds of monetary offers. And imagine you give away free shipping, which has a $12 value, or you give a customer $15 off on the product. Mm -hmm the free shipping promotion wins by a large margin. So we are hardwired at a very low level of our brain processing to hate particular types of fees. And taxes and shipping costs absolutely fall into that category. Interesting. Yeah. Another thing that jumped out at me, you talked earlier about Amazon passing Walmart in consumer electronics. Another interesting thing is per Comscore data, Apparel as a category passed consumer electronics. So apparel is now, in terms of revenue dollars, the highest revenue category in e-commerce. That's pretty amazing when you think about, you know, it's recently as five years ago, people felt like you, you know, you would never see apparel be that huge online because you got to touch it, feel it, try it on. So that's pretty amazing. Totally agree. I cannot count the number of times apparel executives have told me in the last decade that people are never going to want to shop for clothes online. And, oh, by the way, it's a foregone conclusion that, of course, they'd want to buy things like laptops and televisions online. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now they they are wrong. Comscore also did an interesting thing. Usually their data is pretty objective. And this year they dedicated some of the report talking about the fact that CPG e-commerce is still very nascent. And again, this is all North American data, but they're highlighting what a a meaningful opportunity CPG is and predicting that CPG will be the next uh, fast runner in e-commerce. And so one of the data points they throw out is like only about 2% of CPG sales is online right now. And were that to grow to 5%, which still lags the whole retail industry, which is at close to 10%, 
if, if CPG sales went from 2% to 5%, that would be a $40 billion opportunity for the CPG industry. And so that should certainly wake up a lot of CPGs that don't have a well-cooked e-commerce strategy. Like the other way I like to say that is more than half of all the growth in the in the CPG category over the next three years is going to be digital. So super important. And what's interesting is the retailers that win in digital CPG are not the retailers that win in traditional CPG. So the grocery stores are super important to CPG. So Safeway, Kroger are definitely top retailers in brick and mortar CPG. And in digital, it's, of course, Amazon, Walmart, Target. Yeah. So I found that interesting. We talk a lot about the mobile gap. They have a slightly different definition of mobile gap than me, but it's always super interesting. They define the mobile gap as the gap between the percentage of time people spend on mobile devices and the percentage of dollars that they spend on mobile devices. So for Q1, Comscore has 66% of all the time people spend on retail sites is on mobile devices, but only 19% of all the dollars people spend on retail sites is is coming from mobile devices. So they highlight that as a significant opportunity. Uh, I would tie that. I think that that's interesting. I would tie that to a stat that we didn't talk about from Mary Meeker's presentation, that there's still this huge gap where marketers are, are disproportionately spending their marketing dollars on print and traditional media outlet when the media consumption is now you know significantly skewed to digital and mobile and so she highlights that the biggest gap between audience and media spend is on mobile and that in general we're all all marketers are way underspending on the on the mobile category and comscore is kind of echoing that in e-commerce and saying there's a big gap and you know there's a big opportunity unfulfilled in terms of mobile commerce And then I guess the last more tactical stat from Comscore that was super interesting to me is that there's a direct correlation between your mobile phone screen size and the amount of money spent on that mobile phone. So the bigger the user screen uh, on their their smartphone, the more they're likely to spend, the higher their conversion rate will be. Yeah, the the mobile gap thing, I don't want to get into it because you and I have vastly different opinions on this one. But And this is definitely something we need to do a deep dive on. But we really need to solve this as, you know, regardless of who's right, you or I, and it's clearly me. Yep. Um, <laughs> we need to solve this as an industry. So, so it's definitely one we need to spend some time on, um, and, and, you know, get listener feedback on as well. The, um, within the mobile context, there was one head scratcher for me. There's a slide and it's 19 in, in the general deck, um, that we'll link to. Uh, and in there for the first time that I've seen, they actually kind of took the category map they have. And they, they kind of gave a share of digital commerce by platform. And the two platforms they give are mobile and desktop. Um, and I think in their vernacular, they put, they don't do Google where Google puts tablet into desktop. I think Comsquare puts tablet Comsquare and mobile. Comsquare has tablet and mobile, yeah. exactly, which yeah, is yeah. annoying. Yeah, so it's kind of apples and oranges everywhere. But anyway, uh, and, you know, Tablet is kind of not terribly relevant anymore. Um, but, but the head scratcher for me was, you know, I started reading it. And I was like, okay, uh, 19% of total commerce is mobile, 81 did desktop. I get that. And then certain categories made sense to me, um, but then other ones didn't. So, for example, uh, consumer electronics actually under indexes uh, and is 11% mobile versus the 19% average. But at the same time, another high ticket 
category like jewelry and watches was at 41% mobile. That that's just very strange to me because like, you know, that's a, you know, typically jewelry and watches has like a 200 plus dollar AOV, which you would think would have high consideration, lots of looking at it on the desktop kind of thing going on versus the small screen. Um, so I thought that was a little unusual. Maybe there's a male female thing going on there. I, I don't. I don't. We see that in um, in uh, our on demand company that that you know females definitely love the the phone format and and buying on there more than males. So there's like a weird demographic thing there. What, what did you make of that data? Same takeaway as you. If you had tested me before I saw this data, I would have been totally wrong in terms of guessing which categories would over-index on mobile and wouldn't. There are some categories I would have totally expected to over-index that did, things that are very timely or are impulse-oriented, so like mm-hmm. events and, and uh, concert tickets and things like that that you kind of do in the flowers. moment. Yep, flowers. It makes perfect sense that those would Earlier you, today, you may have been... Uh, doing some of that today, or if I haven't, I should have. Yes. Um, we don't. We don't need to verify that. But then there were very high consideration categories. So there were category furniture over indexed on mobile, which I wouldn't have guessed and surprised me. Toys over indexed on mobile, which I wouldn't have guessed and surprised me. And then things like consumer electronics under indexed on mobile, which I would have been dead wrong. Maybe it's a showrooming indicator. Like maybe you're in the furniture store and you're showrooming or, yeah, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that was part of what I was almost thinking is like, if you look at the correlation between those categories and the categories that have high e-commerce adoption, it was almost like the things that were mobile were the low consideration things and the things with the low e-commerce adoption. So you'd be more likely to be using mobile for consideration, but that I don't know. Mm. Uh, TBD, but something we should definitely think about and, if I'm not mistaken, that was a new data set. That piece of data wasn't in previous ComScore, so I found that interesting. We'll have to get Gian on the show and uh, have him walk us through it. We should totally get him on because I also want to ask him, there, there's a number of data points in there that you as a ComScore user cannot get. I'm always curious so I, if I'm just not expert enough in his less than optimal user interface or if he's pulling some raw data that they don't make available in their commercial products. Cool. Any other uh, outside of the reports that we uh, we love? Um, any other interesting news this week? Yeah, there was one very big thing in my world, which is that Salesforce.com bought Demandware this week for $2.8 billion. Yeah, that, that was a shock. Um, and I woke up, I get up pretty early, saw the news, and... Um, you know, I think it was like six thirty in the morning. So I have many friends that work at Demandware, and I fired off emails. You know, congrats, welcome to Salesforce. And I would say I sent probably ten notes, and five came back, and they're like, uh, "What are you talking? About? Did you <laughs> did you mean to email me?" So I was the guy that told like a bunch of my friends at Demandware about this, and I was like, "You're getting acquired by Salesforce." And they're like, "What?" They're like, well, I guess this makes sense that we're having an all hands meeting at you know nine or ten. So it's kind of funny. I got a little scoop on people. That's totally funny. Uh, one thing I would advise you to be a little careful about is emailing those friends. Now you should be careful because you are on a giant marketing database and you're now going to get spammed way more efficiently than you ever would have when you were just emailing Demandware. Because you see, Salesforce is good at tracking you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Um, <laughs> that's one of my mini lame jokes is you go to most trade shows and the exhibitors, it drives me nuts. You, you, they spend a fortune to have this booth and you'll swing by, see something interesting, let them scan your badge or give them a business card and say, please send me information about that. And the hit rate is like 50%. Like it's shocking how many people spend a fortune to come to that show and capture leads and then they don't follow up which always annoys me as a marketer. And the one enormous exception to that rule is if you ever go to the Dreamforce show, which is Salesforce's show, and you give any exhibitor there your name, you are going to hear from them every week for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's all robots, though. Yeah, but yeah, it's be careful giving out your name at the Salesforce automation show. Just a, a tip for listeners. So, so what's your take on this acquisition? Is this a game changer? You know, Salesforce really hasn't done much in e-commerce. I, I know we have some customers, maybe 50 that use Salesforce as kind of a retail CRM. What, what's this mean? I think it is a big deal. I like to think about it in terms of short-term impacts and long-term impacts. And so in the short term, my speculation is this is going to be bad news for demandware customers. And I say that having worked with a lot of platforms that got acquired, and the acquisition is hugely disruptive. And whatever the pace was of evolution of the platform when they were an independent entity, it gets totally disrupted as the acquirer assimilates them and reassigns a bunch of their work to to work on integration to the acquirer's other products and all these things. So you look at WebSphere, and when they acquired Sterling, it totally hampered development of, of IBM's WebSphere Commerce. When you look at Hybris getting acquired by SAP, that acquisition totally hampered it. eBay's acquisition of Magento almost ruined Magento. And so, you know, now you've got Demandware being acquired, and you know, you immediately go, oh, gosh, is Salesforce going to port that to the Force.com platform instead of investing dollars in in continuing to improve that platform? At some point, are they going to start aggregating Salesforces? And so will the salespeople be less specialized just in demand where? Like at the, at the moment, the, the sales pitch for those two products is very different. So I suspect that this could be a little bit disruptive and that we'll probably see demand where in the short term being a little less efficient at selling themselves to new customers and being a little less efficient at improving their platform. One 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 positive is that I've always kind of felt like demandware was going out there and they started with just kind of the cart and then they bought an order management system and then a point of sale system. It's taken them a while to integrate those things. And um, when I talk to some of their customers, there's always been like you know, no CRM system. And as demandware has gotten more and more into brands, these brands are so new to all of this. They typically, they may have a CRM system, but it's from like 1972. You know, it's like really, really, really old school. Um, they don't have a modern one they're already locked into. So one, one positive is it does kind of, you know, there is a whiteboard model at least where there's now a CRM kind of integrated you know, in theory with, with demandware. No, I totally agree. And that's a perfect segue to the long-term impacts, right? So to me, one of the really favorable long-term impacts is potential tight integration with a best-in-class CRM. So if you look at most e-commerce platforms, very few of them are well integrated to a good CRM. Very few of them are integrated to Salesforce. And they, you know, they tend to have their user databases in the e-commerce engine which is not a CRM, and they don't do an, in, an integration. So you have this siloed data. You have all this valuable data about how consumers are behaving on the e-commerce platform, but you don't have it aggregated in an ecosystem where you see the 360-degree view of that customer. And so 
I think Salesforce plus an e-commerce platform makes a ton of sense. And Demandware is obviously in the pull position to have a, a, a very tight, great integration with Salesforce. I'm also with you in the long run, like clients that buy Demandware, you know, are tend to be looking for turnkey solutions and they, you know, very often might not have CRM as well. So you could imagine both of those products being able to be bundled together in the long run. Also, at the moment, I feel like Demandware and Salesforce have almost diametrically opposed business models and customer bases, right? So Demandware is exclusively a rev share model. Salesforce is not. Demandware is almost exclusively B2C, and they've overtly said that they're not going to focus on B2B. Salesforce is dramatically skewed towards B2B. So in the short run, that means like there's not as many immediate synergies as one might think. But in the long run, you could imagine, hey, maybe this does cause Demandware to start focusing on more to B2B features, which could be hugely market expanding for Demandware. It helps Salesforce meet new B2C customers that could adopt Salesforce, so it could help Salesforce grow. And I personally have always felt that one of the limiting factors that Demandware has been their rev share model. I think there's a lot of customers that outgrow the platform, not because of the platform, but because of the economic model. And potentially, if they adopt a Salesforce licensing model, you could imagine that that is market expanding for Demandware. So my sort of view is, in the long run, this is a super interesting, potentially very favorable acquisition. In the short run, you know, you you should expect some disruption, and it might be might be less than perfect for those existing Demandware customers. What do you think about the knock-on effects? So um, when I'm pretty sure this is a sequence of how it happened. So. Uh, about four or five years ago, uh, Salesforce acquired um, Exact Target, and then they kind of rebranded it as the Marketing Cloud. Uh, and and just you, you didn't mention it, but they've rebranded. They've already said that this demandware is going to be the heart of a commerce cloud. Um, so they're they're like really big into kind of taking these kind of vertical cloud offerings and and giving them a name and then bulking them up over time. And they've done a couple of little add-ons to Exact Target, but that that was like the core of it. And then very rapidly, you had IBM bought Silver Pop, and you know I can't remember who bought everything, but you know everyone ended up Oracle bought Responses. Is that right? Yep. Uh, and then uh, this is a little outside of my my world. And then uh, you know someone you know, Adobe I think bought one. Um, so then everyone had to have a marketing cloud. And so you know, do you think this causes that kind of a chain reaction? Because unlike then, there a lot of these guys already have platforms, right? Yeah, the way I would say it is that marketing clouds now need a commerce component, right? Um, and so whether you're a a commerce cloud that's trying to acquire more marketing capabilities or you're a marketing cloud trying to acquire more commerce capabilities, that the market and the customer are demanding the integration of marketing and commerce, right? And that makes perfect sense. In the old world, you had the CMO that was responsible for building the brand and spending the media dollars and doing all those things, and you had a, a, a VP of e-commerce that was responsible for selling stuff. And they were two totally different silos and often didn't collaborate very much. Today, that homepage of that website has two super important hats. It's the front door of the most busy, high-volume uh, store for every retailer, and it's the flagship brand ambassador for every retailer and brand. And so you no longer need a website that's a commerce site or a marketing site. You absolutely need a website that's both. So it makes perfect sense that that all the customers would want tools that integrate those. And so what you've seen is 
the guys that had great commerce capabilities like IBM, SAP, and Oracle are all rapidly building out their marketing capabilities. And SAP now markets a a marketing cloud. IBM now markets a marketing cloud. Oracle is adding more marketing capability. And then you look at the the guys that have the great marketing clouds like Adobe and Sitecore, and they've both gone out and you know in Sitecore's case they acquired a commerce company and we we all think that uh Adobe is starting to look like the last girl without a prom date and it it seems like we know that they they were a bidder that didn't win when SAP bought Hybris, they very likely were a bidder on this demandware acquisition and didn't win. And so it's going to be super interesting to see what Adobe does. They they may, in fact, be one of the losers in this acquisition. Interesting. How about, um, you know, when you think about these big scale companies, we haven't talked about Oracle. Um, they have ATG, but it's not really cloud. And then uh, IBM has WebSphere, which also isn't cloud, is my understanding. And Hybris is kind of like, it can go, it's like both, it can be installed or cloud or something like that. And then Microsoft's like, you know, they're big in cloud computing. It's a huge thing for them. There's always these perpetual rumors they're buying Salesforce. It's never happened. They do have Great Plains, which I always forget what they've renamed it to. Um, so they do have a CRM system. Do you, do you think they kind of are a sleeping giant in this whole thing? Potentially, Microsoft, they even have a couple. They have Dynamics, and so that Dynamics, um, yeah. yeah. Although Microsoft owned a commerce platform and sold it, so the Sitecore mm-hmm. commerce platform is actually formerly Microsoft Commerce Server, and it changed hands about uh, four, I lost track it like five times that that platform got bought and sold. Although there's still many customers on it, yeah. So I think that's a, it's a super interesting space. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Like there are still some standalone commerce platforms out there that we all think are being uh would be interested in being acquired and there's you know diminishing number of suitors so it'll be interesting to see what those guys do if they go out and get more investment and try to make a more concerted effort to win on their own or you know they go try to create new suitors or or how that's going to play out i have to tell you there was a small but very promising company called cloud craze that had built an e-commerce platform on the force.com stack and mm-hmm. and until this week, it felt like they were gaining a lot of momentum. They were, you know, run by an experienced e-commerce team that had built a large integration firm that they sold to Accenture that was called Acuity. And so that was an up-and-comer. And, you know, it has to be a huge blow to them that they're a platinum partner of Salesforce and they're the only commerce solution for Salesforce. And then, bam, Salesforce goes out and acquires someone much bigger than them. Yeah, they had probably a rough day, I feel yeah, bad for them. No, I do too. And, <laughs> and that doesn't mean that they can't pivot and find another way to win. Like, yeah. frankly, Salesforce could buy them just to have commerce experts to help them integrate demandware into Salesforce. Yeah. How? Um, so I've noticed you've avoided names, so I'm going to put your feet to the fire. What's uh, what's kind of like not a dead pool, but a, a, a choir pool? What are kind of four or five companies you think that kind of go and play now as as part of this? Yeah, oh, I'm perfectly happy to name names. So there's platforms that feel like they've petered out and you would imagine are we're looking for an acquisition or need some sort of exit strategy. And that's like Elastic Path or Intershop. The Elastipath is a name that gets thrown around a ton as a Adobe acquisition. Uh, the Elastipath is the best integrated with Adobe right now, so that would make perfect sense. Um, Intershop was the platform that GSI used. 
they're a German company that feels like they, they've struggled to gain attraction as a lot of their traditional competitors grew really fast and got acquired by SAP and others. So those seem like the, the low hanging fruit for an acquirer. Then sort of in that middle tier, you have Magenta, which is interesting. They just got spun out from eBay. They were, you know, a super, um, high potential platform when eBay acquired them. Like I personally don't think eBay did them any favors in the couple of years that they owned them. And so now the magic question is, can they regain their former magic? There's some indication that, that, that they're on the right track to do that. I'm certainly rooting for them, but you know, they're not super valuable at the moment. So you could imagine someone bigger snapping them up and they, they may have the, of the on-prem solutions, they have the largest user base. Uh, Magento briefly had a SaaS solution that they, they ran themselves called Magento Go, Go, and eBay spun that down at one point. So don't know whether Magento plans to add a, a SaaS platform back or not. And then, obviously, you've got those really successful SaaS platforms that are focused on the SMB market, like Shopify and BigCommerce. It feels like BigCommerce is trying to move upscale and be more mid-tier. You know, Shopify seems to you know, be killing it in the SMB space, and of course, it's public and now has a, a reasonable market cap, so they might be a tough acquisition. Um, but so all of those are interesting. I would just just one quick comment on some of the, the big enterprise players. IBM, Oracle, and SAP all have cloud offerings, so they all have come up with some way to sell their on-prem software that's hosted by them and available as a, as a maybe not multi-tenant, but as a, a SaaS offering. And they're, they're just all early and rudimentary and rough. And so, you know, it's very reasonable to expect that they'll all continue to make progress in improving those offerings. But it, it feels less likely to me that one of those guys is going to buy a second SaaS platform versus uh, migrate their current, current you know, um, super valuable asset to a SaaS solution. Cool. One um one that you didn't mention that when it, going to internet retailer made me think about it. these guys spend a ton on marketing is, uh, you know, I think they used to be called Volusion and now they're Mozu. I, I can't tell if they still have both platforms or whatnot. And are, are they one of the ones you would put in here or are they just not really in this consideration set? Yeah, no, no, no. They're, they would absolutely be in that consideration set. They're, they're also a SaaS platform. they they basically were, uh, when they launched the Mozu platform, which is sort of the evolution of Volusion, <laughs> that's hard to say. <laughs> the, uh, I think there's still some clients on Volution, but I think the main platform they sell today is Mozu. Um, Mozu is definitely targeted at that mid-tier client. So it's almost like demandware without the rev share, or maybe a little lower in the demandware, but definitely not an SMB solution. My sense is that's where big commerce is trying to go. And I just I don't feel like Mozu has gotten a ton of traction yet, but I would quickly point out because of Razorfish's place in the marketplace, we tend to work work with larger clients that are working with with more enterprise systems. So it's totally possible that Mozu is having more success than I personally see. Got it. Cool. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think it's going to be an interesting play. I definitely think that the acquisition, the demandware acquisition, is a uh, an interesting disruption, and it's going to be fun. Uh, to watch it play out and, you know, obviously hope it ends up improving the tool sets that we all have to, to make these experiences. 
Yeah, one uh, I know we're up against time. One one quick one I wanted to throw out there because I found a lot of people kind of missed it with all this other news coming out. Um, Twitter kind of quietly shuttered the buy button project. So this was um, you know they hired an executive from. Um, from Live Nation to run this Nathan Hubbard, I believe is his name. Um, and this was a big area of focus and it was kind of a lot of hoopla around it. Twitter always kind of called it an experiment. So they weren't, uh, you know, really hyping it up. Um, the payment company Stripe was always hyping it up. Uh, and then, you know, Jack Dorsey has come in as CEO. That was when Dick Costello was CEO that this buy button thing got a lot of momentum. Um, it was pretty interesting. We kept a pretty close eye on it because to us at Channel Advisor, it's a marketplace. It, it had some architecture challenges. A lot of these do. Uh, and then they just kind of quietly kind of announced that they're going to be end of lifing that. So, you know, this, this kind of, um, you know, social button kind of thing. And, and even Facebook hasn't really done much with theirs. Um, the the one that still the company is really hyping a lot is Pinterest. Um, when we were at Shop Talk, and I don't think we mentioned this in the recap, but, you know, they they had their head of monetization there just really talking about how big it was. But I, I thought it was kind of telling he, you know, in our world, GMV or, re, or sales matter and conversions, those kinds of things. But they always just talk about, you know, the number of merchants and the number of pins. Um, you know, we, we don't support that specifically at Channel Advisor. We do have some, we do support rich pins, which is kind of a lot easier than the transactional thing. And um, we just don't see a lot of traffic coming back. But, but what's interesting is you, you do see all this data. I think this is in the Meeker deck about, you know, when you ask people, where else they're shopping online, they're saying Pinterest. So there's a weird disconnect in these social things uh, and, and actually getting people to buy things. And um, this is an area where people in e-commerce tend to be split. Um, so, you know, Suturita has always been famously against this kind of stuff. I've been a little bit more. I, I do think that ultimately these companies will figure some of this out. Twitter obviously has taken their hat out of the ring, but I think Facebook will kind of get there. Um, Pinterest, another problem with Pinterest that drives me crazy is um, just the way they don't think about it like e-commerce folks. And just the way they do attributes is really bad. And then what you do is you just kind of when you put a pin up, you say how much inventory you have. And then they check back when someone adds it to the cart. Well, well, guess what happens? You know, 99% of the time, the 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 cart just like craps out on you. Um, so, so it, you know, I, I, I check this pretty regularly. I'll go try to buy four or five things and I have never spent a dime on Pinterest because I can never get the experience to work. And it's almost like no one, no one there must like realize this is going on or something because clearly they would try to solve this. So, so it's really interesting and, you know, it'd be interesting to see, um, if Facebook and Pinterest shelve theirs or if they're able to iterate them to the point where they're successful. Yeah, I haven't been super excited about the buy buttons. I think there are niches where they can be really successful. And I think there's a spectrum of all those different platforms in terms of which ones are most suited for commerce versus least suited for commerce. And honestly, uh, been saying for a while, Twitter is least suited for most kinds of commerce, right? So the, the half-life on a post is super short on Twitter. Uh, so, you know, it makes perfect sense that when you're tweeting about a concert coming up or something like that, that it might make sense to sell concert tickets. And by the way, Nathan Hubbard, the, the commerce guy at Twitter came from Ticketmaster. So he certainly understands that space. But like, I don't think anyone's going to buy a refrigerator, for, you know, after seeing a tweet in the Twitter stream that lasts for about 30 seconds. And a big problem with the the Stripe Twitter implementation is the provider of the goods is not the seller of record. So Twitter is actually the seller of record for those sales, and it's a really rudimentary integration. So 
you know, inventory gets out of sync and you can, you can sell stuff that you don't have. And then you have this whole back order problem. And when you want to dispute the card, like you're disputing a Stripe charge, which is going to Twitter, not <laughs> disputing a charge with the merchant that never shipped the goods. So there were, there were just a bunch of things working against the, the Twitter buy button implementation, which, you know, therefore made it, and, and frankly, we just tested it with a bunch of clients where the, you know, board of directors said, we have to try this. And it just never worked very well. So it didn't shock me that Twitter is the first one to sort of de-emphasize that. I have heard they're not going to actually turn it off, um, even though you know they're saying it's kind of a failed experiment. So if you're if you have something running right now, it sounds like they're not going to pull the rug out from under you. But I do think to your point, there's much higher buying intent on Pinterest, and the the pins last a lot longer than a tweet. So. If it's going to work, Pinterest makes more sense. I will say for a long time, we've been talking about Pinterest being the highest buying intent social network, but we're now seeing data that Instagram, you know, is potentially past Pinterest in that regard. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. It's starting to feel like for the millennials, which is, you know, who we're all targeting and who we think are the most likely to adopt these buy buttons, that Snapchat and Instagram are going to be the most important platforms. And so, you know, maybe that doesn't bode super well for Pinterest. It, and that's interesting. I don't think we covered it on the show because we haven't done news in a while, but, but Facebook did again, kind of quietly. Um, they've had this kind of product listing ad like unit called Facebook dynamic products or dynamic product ads, something like that. Um, they just, they just kind of added Instagram into that network, which is pretty interesting. And we see that do really well for our customers. It's a little bit up funnel. Um, and that's where you see that carousel that kind of, a lot of times it's used for retargeting, but it can be for, for top of the funnel. Hey, you like, uh, you know, cars, here's some car accessories, kinds of things. Um, one other quick thing, um, I thought this has happened. I just double checked. Um, at Imagine this year, Magento did announce that they're offering, uh, they call it Magento Enterprise Cloud Edition. So, um, and they're using AWS to host the enterprise version. So they are kind of back to it. Um, before when they did Magento Go, it was kind of the community edition, even stripped down community edition, I think. So it's like community edition light. So it does look like Magento is trying to kind of have efforts to move up market with a hosted kind of a solution. Um, I haven't heard of any customers using this or anything like that, but it, it's, you know, they, they definitely, to your other point, they're, they're definitely realizing there's been a change in the market and, and they're trying to do something about it. Absolutely. And I, that reminds me of one thing I should mention. Apparently, Mark Lavelle, the CEO of Magento, is a Jason and Scott listener. And it's a note has been passed on to me that I have a couple things wrong on Magento. And so I'm, I'm happy to find that out and learn. And uh, we're going to need to invite Mark on the show and have him uh, uh, both set the record straight and maybe give us a scoop about where they're going. Yeah, awesome. Well, I would love to hear more about it. That would be cool. And of course, Scott, it's happened again. We've spent a perfectly good 70 minutes of our listeners' time. So I think we're going to bring this episode to a close. As a reminder, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and like our Facebook page. So until next week, wishing all the listeners a happy conversing. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you at Internet Retailer. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 